Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors, and you, our listeners, get to ask the questions. I'm Eliza Rosenberry, and my favorite depiction of baseball in fiction was The Art of Fielding by Chad Harbach. Oh my God, I love that book. It's so good. I even got to go to a book party for it. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, that's amazing. I don't. I forget when it came out, a couple of years ago, but it was really good. A long good. time ago. A long time ago. <laughs> Not that long ago. By the way, I'm Tavi Kowalchuk. <laughs> <laughs> Another book about baseball that I really love is a novel by Jane Levy. She's usually known yeah. for writing nonfiction biographies of baseball players, but she wrote this novel called Squeeze Play. It Ooh. is so much fun. Okay, I'll add it to my list. On today's show, four siblings learn to care for one another and grow up after a surprise death transforms their family. We'll be talking about the family saga, The Last Romantics. We think it will be a great addition to your book club. And later in the show, we'll be joined by New York Times bestselling author Tara Conklin. Yay! But first, we wanted to share this fantastic review of the podcast from Munsinger, who says, Love this podcast. It is exactly what I want every book club I've ever been to be a part of to be. Smart, well-reasoned, and with people who have read the book. It's very love important. The, <laughs> <laughs> she, Munsinger goes on to say, love the audiobook sample at the end. Good added bonus. But don't listen unless you've read the book. My warning. <gasps> interesting. What do you think about that, Eliza? I don't know. I think it's so interesting. I, I feel like we try to not have any really big spoilers just in case you haven't read the book. But I definitely think that if you've read the book you might get more out of it. I don't know. What do you think? I definitely think that if you've read the book, you'll get more out of the podcast. Yeah. But I, I try really hard not to let any spoilers slip. Yeah. I really do. I want to get people to get excited about the yeah, book. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So FYI, this is a spoiler-free podcast. And thank you, we'll Munsinger. Yes, thank you so much. A reminder to all of our listeners, if you post a review of our podcast, good or bad, there's <laughs> a very good chance that we'll read your critique on the show, too. And now we present to you The Last Romantics Abridged. The Last Romantics follows the four Skinner siblings for nearly 100 years. Starting in the year 2079, the world is devastated by climate change, and the renowned poet Fiona Skinner is asked about the inspiration of her most iconic work, the love poem. Fiona has avoided this question for years, but she's finally ready to face the painful memories of her childhood that inspired the work. Story begins in the summer of 1981 in a big yellow house with her three siblings in a middle-class Connecticut town. After their father passes away, the family enters what they referred to as the pause, capitalized, the months where their depressed mother never left her room and forced them to raise themselves and each other. That summer of abandonment shaped their lives forever. Tracing the lives of each sibling through adolescence into adulthood, the Last Romantics introduces Renee, who goes through med school, Caroline, who gets married and has kids, and Fiona moves to New York City who, and writes poetry and keeps a blog that tracks her sexual encounters. <laughs> Meanwhile, Joe, the golden boy and the only brother, turns out to be a bit more troubled than his sisters think. When his path to glory as a baseball star is compromised, it sets off a chain of events that shatters the Skinner family. So, Tavia, what did you think of this book? Those siblings. I know. I loved that there are four of them, that they were feral together during the pause, that they have one bond as a group, and then 
other bonds as individuals. Totally. I just loved these siblings. I wanted to be a part of their group. I know. I, I'm discovering that I love books about siblings. I think I've said before that I only I have one sister, so it's just the two of us growing up. So I've always been fascinated by big families with a lot of kids and all of these dynamics. And like you said, they have the dynamic as a group, but then they also have individual relationships. And I love that, you know, this novel really teases all of that out. Oh, does it so well. And that pause, I love that time in their life where they really were left to fend for themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, it, as a child, I don't think I would want that because it sounds really dangerous and scary. Yeah. Also, the freedom that they had and the way that Tara Conklin wrote about it, it just really was very magical. And it reminded me of the summers where I was a child and I was more of a master of my own time yeah. than during the school year. Yeah. There was a little bit of that, like, I don't know if you ever read, like, The Boxcar Children or, like, these sort I never of did. these, like, chi- these, like, fantasies that you have when you're a kid in literature and in real life of, like, of being a master of your own time, of, like, having total independence and foraging for your food and being totally self-reliant. Obviously, that's, like you said, you wouldn't actually want that. But I think that there's something magical about that that is sort of captured during the pause. Yeah. It's like Swiss Family Robinson, yes. though, without the parents. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and what I really loved about the pause, and especially the way that she writes about it when they reflect back on it and they call it the pause, you know, in capital letters and everything, it's sort of a way of mythologizing their own family and their own personal history, which I really, I thought that was really good. Yeah, that really is quite a sophisticated observation you just made, Eliza. Oh, thank, thank you very much, Tavia. <laughs> Speaking of sophisticated observations, <laughs> let's talk about this framing device. Yes. So I follow the conversations about this book on Goodreads and during the Jenna Book Club pick. Yeah, it was a book that's club right, on the Today, Today Show. Show. Yeah. And, you know, this framing device is controversial. The mm-hmm. fact that the novel starts it, when the author is, you know, in the her, narrator, yeah, it, it starts with a narrator, and um, in 2079, I yeah. think, and then she looks back and tells the story of the child, their childhood, and then their lives together. And every now and then, she'll pop back in, in from 2079 and like f- set up the story again, and then she closes it out at the end. I personally didn't love it as a narrative tool. I found it a little disruptive. But I did like the way that she used it to set up the motif of storytelling and the yes. motif of love yeah. in the novel. Yes, those you're are so right. Two big themes. And I don't know how she could have introduced them as eloquently without that frame. Yeah. I love what you say about how she introduces the motif of of love because it is called the love poem. This like her most famous poem or whatever. And but it's not like a love poem like to a romantic partner. Right. Fiona's poem that, that yeah, made her career. Exactly. Yeah. Like she, This is a poem that she's written that's inspired by the love that she had with her siblings. And that's why this, you know, she goes into the whole story about like what it was like growing up with her siblings, da, 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 when she's asked about the poem. And I love that that sort of prompts you as the reader to think about the different kinds. I mean, there's only one word that we have for it, but like the different kinds of love, like romantic love, familial love, platonic love, you know, all of these different kinds of love, I think is, like you said, a motif in the book. And I thought that that was... A, a useful way to present it. And I I also just love that play talking about love, like the title, The Last Romantics. It's not about romantic love. Yeah. It, it is, but it isn't. It's right. about so much more. And, yes. And so it really sets us on our ear a little bit yeah. to start with. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and then the one other thing, but I know we want to talk to the author, but the one other thing that I really loved about this book was how 
you know, there's three sisters and one brother. And I liked how the novel sort of follows the three sisters who are, as siblings are, very different. The plot asks these characters to do a lot of caretaking of each other. And I thought it was really interesting how those characters, you know, these three female characters navigated familial responsibilities with their own aspirations outside of the family. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, definitely. I think I think Fiona is a feminist for sure. Definitely. And I think that comes through in the story. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Join our Facebook group, The Book Club Girls, where you can talk with other book lovers and pose your own questions to the authors who appear on this show. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash the book club girls. And stay tuned after the show for a short clip from the audiobook of The Last Romantics. Today, we are joined by Tara Conklin, whose book, The Last Romantics, is out now. Welcome, Tara, to the Book Club Girl podcast. Hi, it's great to be here. We are so glad to have you. Thank you for joining us. I was just telling Eliza how much I love the siblings in this book and their various relationships with each other in your novel. I have to ask you, what inspired this book? And by that, I mean, do you have a lot of siblings, too? (laughs) I do. Well, I don't know. I have two, which seems like a lot sometimes, and other times (laughs) doesn't seem like many. Um, I have two younger sisters, and I'm also the mother of three children. And my dad is one of six, and I have a ton of cousins. I can't even count them all. And I've always been really, really fascinated with sibling relationships and particularly as a mother, seeing how the alliances kind of shift and change, you know, month to month, year to year, sometimes day to day, and how the kids really bounce off of each other and play off of each other and how they impact each other and impact each other's personalities. I loved that, too. And I'm the oldest, but I only have one younger sister. So I love reading books about big family. Like, I love reading a book where there's four siblings. Like, to me, that seems, like, so interesting. Because, like you said, there there are alliances and they shift. With me and my sister, it's like... It's pretty simple, (laughs) but it's fun to read about, you know, the group dynamics and the individual dynamics and all of that. Tara, I was curious if you, as the author, if you felt like you identified with one of the siblings. You know, people have asked me that question a lot on book tour, actually. I mean, I identify with all of them, but for, you know, for different reasons. I relate to Renee because she's the oldest and she's kind of a classic type A overachiever and she had a career in in sort of a male-dominated profession. And before I turned to writing, I went to law school and I worked as a lawyer for a lot of years. And that was a very, you know, not the same as medicine, but similar in that it was a a very driven, very kind of male-dominated profession. So I related to her in that way, too. Like Caroline, I was a stay-at-home mom for a while and both loved and, and hated that role, as I think most stay-at-home mo- moms can attest. And then, like Fiona, I'm a writer and, you know, have kind of struggled to make it a part of my life in a way that is meaningful. And I relate to Joe just because he's Joe. Yeah, <laughs> and I loved so him. Human. And he was he's a real high achiever and a real kind of charmed character. But 
he also has a lot of flaws. And I think all of us at heart are sort of this mix of pluses and minuses and weaknesses and strengths. And I definitely, definitely saw, see that mix in myself and in my characters. Tara, I have to ask you about the frame that you use to structure the book. Mm-hmm. I know yes. from following the discussions on Goodreads and elsewhere that it's a little bit controversial among your readers. <laughs> I've noticed but that too. <laughs> we'd love to hear it straight from the author. Why use a frame in this novel? Yeah. Well, you know, in the first sort of, gosh, two or three iterations of this book, I did not have future Fiona, as, as I call her. There was no future Fiona. So I literally had this like aha moment somewhere I mean, it was deep in the third draft, and I was probably three years into writing the book at that point, and I thought, oh, my God, what if Fiona is speaking to us from the future? At the end of the day, I want people to to finish this book and, like, think about what are the most important relationships in their lives and what are, you know, the most important moments in their lives and where they want to be spending their time and who they want to be focusing their energies on and having Fiona I mean that's what we do at the end of our lives as Fiona's doing it but maybe we should do it in the middle too and I kind of wanted to give that you know backwards looking elegiac kind of feel to it and allow the reader to have that experience too just as Fiona was having it. There are so many different types of love in the novel you know, between family members, there's sort of romantic love, characters sort of learning to love themselves or not or struggling with that. So I was curious, what is Fiona trying to say about love in her poem, ultimately? Gosh, that's a great question. <laughs> I think she's really trying to say, and I mean, I, I, and another sort of comment that I've received back from readers is, you know, why aren't there any poems? Like, we want to know what the love poem actually says. (laughs) (laughs) And again, in an earlier version, I did try and put uh, some some of my own poems in there. But I can tell you that Fiona is a far better poet than I am. (laughs) I did not want to I did not want to bring her down with my sort of shoddy attempts at poetry. You know, I think at the end of the day, the love poem is about the complexity of love and how, you know, it's sort of even the very word like love, like it just evokes these images of, you know, kittens and and holding hands and walks on a beach and sunsets and kisses. And but, you know, it's love relationships, whether they're family or romantic or, you know, mother child or you know, parent, child, you know, they're very complicated and they're very hard. And the love poem ultimately is just about how love requires give and take. And it's not the ideal. It's not the end of the story. It's sort of the beginning. I love that. And and she does say her siblings were the loves of her life. That to me is sort of at the crux of this novel. Like these relationships for her were so important and they were you know the love of your life is is this phrase that's so often um, associated with a romantic love a partner um, and I remember reading a, a quote from um, Cheryl Strayed years ago saying that her mother was the love of her life and I thought that was such a revolutionary concept like wow you know you we can we can use that phrase for other people and other relationships and and I think 
placing so much emphasis on romantic love. I mean, yeah, it's it can also be the love of your life. But for her, it was her siblings. And that was ultimately what the love poem was about. You're listening to the Book Club Girl podcast, where our guest this week is Tara Conklin, whose book, The Last Romantics, is out now. You can read more about Tara's book at bookclubgirl.com. Coming up on the Book Club Girl podcast, we ask Tara Conklin about her literary white whale. Stick around. This episode of the Book Club Girl podcast is brought to you by one of our favorite podcasts about books. Remember reading. Which classic children's books do you remember reading? Little House on the Prairie? Charlotte's Web, or maybe something more recent like Monster. Introducing Remember Reading, a family podcast about classic children's books for the kids who discover them and the adults that remember them. I first listened to the Bridge to Terabithia episode of this podcast because as I've mentioned before, it's the book that turned me into a lifelong bookworm. I love the way the podcast unearthed behind the scenes stories that led to the publication of the book. It's also unique in the way it blends interviews with kids and authors and editors, as well as audiobook excerpts and archived interviews. Find the Remember Reading podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more, visit rememberreading.com and follow Reading Pod on Twitter. Welcome back to the show. Each week, we bring you a new and fascinating conversation with an author who's written a book that we think is a great choice for book clubs to read together. And that's definitely The Last Romantics. Author Tara Conklin is here with us answering questions from our listeners. Hi, my question is for Tara Conklin, and it's about The Last Romantics. I was hoping she could talk a little bit about the relationship between the three sisters. They are also different. They're such different people. They have different marriages, different jobs, different trajectories, but those essential relationships between the three felt really authentic. So I'm curious about how they came to be and how the writing of them developed. Thanks. So talk about the sisters. Well, we have Renee, who is the oldest. I think that she probably would have been kind of type A overachiever, even if her father hadn't died and she hadn't taken on the role that she did during the pause. But I think because she did become sort of a mother to her siblings during those years when their own mother was was in a depression, I think that did have a great impact on Renee later in life. I mean, she felt like she always had to be on top of everything and she always had to be taking care of people. And, you know, and that had some positive implications it also had some negative ones for her um, for her own kind of mental health and and sense of uh, personal fulfillment Caroline you know she was I think in competition with Renee a lot and she kind of realized that she couldn't beat Renee and Joe at the sort of achievement, you know, popularity, achievement, charm uh, in those kinds of areas. And so she went kind of in the opposite direction. And she also really rebelled against her mom and her mom's kind of feminist ideals. And she became a mother very early in life and got married and really dedicated herself to her family. And that decision had negative and positive implications as well. I mean, there's, you know, and and then Fiona, of course, she is the artist of the family. She's kind of the 
witness to her siblings' uh, adventures and escapades. And, you know, as a child, she, she keeps her notebook and she scribbles things down. And then she uses those experiences and later in her art. Eliza and I talked a little bit about self-destructive behaviors uh, among the siblings. You know, we were wondering, you know, why you made Fiona, 20-something Fiona, so promiscuous. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really, that's really what it was about for me. You know, I mean, we have Renee kind of uh, dedicating herself to this profession that she feels so passionate about. And then finding Jonathan, who is who is, you know, who is the love of her life and really her only partner in life uh, over the course of the book. And then you have Caroline, who's, you know, investigating family love and and uh, her husband and her children and building this home. And for Fiona, you know, she's 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 the rebel. I mean, she's the she's the youngest and. She's the one who decides to to, you know, go go more towards sexual love and and not so much romantic, but romantic in kind of the sentimental term and meaning of the word. But, you know, romantic between men and women and between partners. And and although, yeah, she is highly promiscuous (laughs) during that time period. Um, when I got to the number in the novel, I was like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. I know. I actually was like working that because there were also, I, you know, there were a bunch of very infamous blogs, sex blogs about that time period. And I kind of looked back on some of their, some of the content and some of the, some of the numbers that were thrown around. So that one was actually a little bit more on the conservative side, <laughs> if you can believe it. <laughs> Must have been such interesting research. <laughs> it was. It was. In fact, it, some of my some people suggested some of my writer friends like you should you should just get just buy up the lastromantics.com and start your own blog and, and <laughs> do like a fake blog. But I yeah, I ultimately did not do that. <laughs> I, I, wise choice, Tara. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so speaking of characters sort of dealing with self-destructive behavior, the novel talks, and shifting in tone a little bit, the novel talks a lot about loss, the loss of a person, and with Joe, the loss of purpose, and looks at ways of dealing with these losses. And we talk, Tavi and I talked about Joe's smashing up the house of the fire iron when his dad dies and when he sort of loses his ability to play baseball he sort of picks up other self-destructive behaviors and so we were sort of curious what what you're saying in the novel about loss and and moving through it you know you have this loss that happens early in the book the loss of their father and you know that's just such a fundamental fundamental event for them and then coupled and worsened by the subsequent loss of their mother for the period of the pause to depression. And for me, it wasn't so much as it was just looking at how those losses impact people differently and how people react differently to grief and to um, and to that kind of stress. There's a line in the book at one point that talks about, you know, some people, some people will always destroy the things they hold closest or the things they love best. And I think that's true for Joe. It's almost like he doesn't 
see himself as being worthy of actually having these positive things in his life and having these relationships. I mean, he's constantly undermining his successes and he doesn't really own them. And I think that, you know, comes from being this kind of charmed kid and having a lot of things handed to him when he was younger. And he, he was, you know, the golden boy and people just let him get away with things that they probably shouldn't have let him get away with. And I think, you know, that the way that, that, that people treated him coupled with the loss of, of his father and then his mother for that period of time just really created this hollow core in him. And then we see how that sort of works its way out over the course of the novel and how the sisters try to help him and try to fill it for him, but without ultimately without success. Each episode, we ask an author, what is your literary white whale? It's a book they've either always meant to read or when they started reading and never finished. Oh, my God. What is yours, Tara? <laughs> well, when you said White Whale, I was like, oh, my God, Moby Dick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've actually I've never read Moby Dick. And I, yeah, it's sitting on my bookshelf, though, like this copy that I bought at a used bookstore however many years ago and it's got this really cool cover and it's like all musty and bookstore smelly and <laughs> I just I you know every once in a while I think this will be the year maybe 2020 will be the year that I read it who knows <laughs> well thank you so much that thank was awesome you. that was really fun that was Tara Conklin whose book The Last Romantics is out now to find out more about Tara's book and how to buy it head to bookclubgirl.com slash podcast, where you can also find links to everything mentioned in this episode. Like what you heard? Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, give us a rating and please do leave a review. Another way to help spread the word about the podcast is to tell your friends about us. It really helps others to find us. You'll hear from us again in two weeks, where we'll be speaking with Shilpi Samaya Gowda, the author of Secret Daughter. You can join the conversation if you've read Secret Daughter and have a question for Shilpi. Post them in the comments on our Book Club Girls Facebook group or call us at 212-207-7336. You can also send us an email, thegirls at bookclubgirl.com. Find us on Instagram, Book Club Girl, Tavia Reads, Eliza is Reading. We're all on there and we'd love to hear from you. Before we go, a big thank you to Jordan Gosperay, who produced today's episode, to Lauren Truskowski, who shook all the trees for The Last Romantics, to Frank Roberto with KUOW for recording this interview, and to our terrific engineer, Violet Furton. One final thank you to my loyal reading buddies, Red Wine and Potato Chips. <laughs> I love that. Mine is White Wine and chocolate. Sounds good. <laughs> Until next time, I'm Eliza. And I'm Tavia. Happy reading. <laughs> that first summer, we went feral. Joe and I became wild things, twigs in our hair, skin brown and dirty and scraped. Renee and Caroline tried to remain more respectable, more mature, but they too bore the marks of neglect and adventure. The house was never clean. We pulled what we needed from the cardboard boxes, but did not unpack them fully. We played games, built forts, constructed castles that stayed up for days, and then scattered underfoot as we played indoor tag or wrestled or fought. We slept in the clothes we wore all day. We did not brush our teeth. 
We bathed only when we began to smell ourselves, or when Renee stripped off our clothes, pushed us under the shower, and turned on the tap. We ate food with our hands straight from the refrigerator, or from the box of groceries that arrived every Friday, delivered by the stock boy Jimmy from the Bexley Corner Store. The food we received was odd or close to spoiling. Leftovers, we came to see. Unsellable. Charity. We were often hungry. We were always barefoot. Joe and I explored our new neighborhood. Only six miles from our old house, but it felt foreign. Another state, another country. There were people with brown skin, headscarves, tattoos. The houses were small and domestic life spilled from windows and doors in a way that would have been unthinkable in our old neighborhood. In front yards, men sat on beach chairs and drank from dull brown bottles. Women yelled at their children who ran naked through a flicking sprinkler. A teenage girl blew smoke and practiced rings up toward the summer sky. In 20 years, Bexley would be deemed a commuter town, and new expensive homes, new box stores would arrive. But in 1981, it was small, forgotten, besieged by inflation and unemployment. On Bexley's east side sat an abandoned mill where industrial furniture was once made for colleges and hospitals. Decades before, the company brought in workers from the city, settled them in cheap houses outfitted with the company's own cheap wares. Now the mill stood empty, brooding, a sprawling static octopus with graffitied tentacles of red brick and cracked windows and one tall grimy smokestack for a head. All around the perimeter were scattered raw wooden boards, chairs with stuffing torn from seat cushions, tables with splintered stumps instead of legs. Before the pause, Noni often drove past the building, and always I would gaze at it with the fear and delight of a cowardly voyeur. During the pause, Noni no longer drove, and so we had no occasion to pass the factory. But sometimes in bed at night, I imagined it, moonlight hitting the broken window panes, rats and cats and raccoons nosing through the interior, biting one another, fighting, scratching the furniture, defecating in empty rooms. I imagined a busy darkness, a dismantling that must be carried out under cover of night. The mysteries of the factory seemed to me similar to the mystery of Noni. Inside, invisible forces were at work, and they were full of a secret rage. Our friends receded that summer. We couldn't walk to the old neighborhood. Noni had instructed us to use the telephone only for emergencies. And besides, it soon became clear that our friends had returned to their normal lives. Lives where groceries must be bought, dinners cooked, television shows watched. Where loved ones were bothersome but healthy and alive. We reminded them of the constant threat of calamity. How quickly it could all go to pieces.